All right, Matt. So how much did Santa pay for his sleigh? I don't know. Nothing, man. It's on the house. <laughs> Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. <laughs> All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Man, I am doing fantastic. Excellent. Excellent. Already, already for uh, the holiday season. Oh, dude, I'm telling you, it snuck up on us. It's already almost Christmas. When If you're listening to this when it drops, Christmas will be here in a couple days, and I cannot believe yeah. it. I, it just, I know it's unbelievable and just let everybody know I am getting a little sickly. So I apologize if my <laughs> voice sounds wonky, um, I will cut out all of my coughs for you guys, but just know I don't normally sound like Kermit the frog, but not, <laughs> not, not always just when he's trying to, um, Hey, ho, Kermit the frog here. Um, so we <laughs> want to say, go check out the Podbelly network um, go to podbelly.com. Uh, we're proud members of the Podbelly Network, um, and you can find a list of shows that we are associated with, um, that we are proud to be associated with, and and you, I guarantee you're going to find something on that list of shows that you're going to like, and you may not find it anywhere else, so go over to podbelly.com. Uh, while yeah. you're on the internet searching for the last minute gifts on Amazon to get delivered, hopefully Christmas Eve, so you can get it wrapped for your significant other because you forgot their favorite thing, go over to patreon.com slash graveyard tales and sign them up and give them a gift of patronage of graveyard tales. They will get a bunch of bonus episodes. We have three different levels, one, five and $10 and our $10 gets the video versions every week of us recording the episodes with all the mistakes that we leave in. Yeah. It, it, you get to see Adam and I um, pick and poke at one another, try to get the other one to laugh. You get to see our setups behind us. Um, so it's it's really cool. And like Adam said, you get to see us mess up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see the retakes and all that fun stuff too. So, so Matt, before we get into it, want to say thank you to everybody who sent in a story this year. Uh, there are so many. Once again this year, we are going to do two episodes. We're going to do one today, and then we're going to have another one that comes out on New Year's. So your whole holiday few weeks here will be filled up with your stories, which we're excited about. And we we couldn't thank you guys enough for sending these in because literally we couldn't do these episodes without your guys uh, <laughs> sending stuff in. That's right. That's right. And and if by some chance uh, you just found us and you go, oh, yeah, we'll see what Graveyard Tales is all about. We have done, this is our fifth annual mm-hmm. Christmas episode with listener stories. Um, what we do every year is 
we celebrate the old Victorian uh, tradition of telling ghost stories around the fire on Christmas Eve. Right. And so we, we open it up and let all of the members of the graveyard tell a story, so to speak. And we're going to, we're going to push forth and we're going to read everybody's stories. Now in years past, we've, we've used your name or, you know, an alias that you gave us. We're not, we're not going to do that this year. We're, we're, we decided we're just going to go with initials. Some people don't care. They'll give us their full name, address, phone number, and the last four of their social. <laughs> uh, other people, you know, they, it looks like uh, it came from Prince. You know, their name is like a symbol <laughs> or something. Um, so we're just going to, we're going to fix all that. <laughs> you don't have to worry. Um, you know, that we're just going to use everybody's initial. Right. And I think it'll work out, work out better that way. All right, Adam, are you are you ready? Settle back and listen to some ghost stories. I am. I should have brought some hot cocoa, but uh, I I'll do that for the next one. No, I have my uh, my my inner energy powder in in my water. <laughs> so if he gets more and more hyper as we get along, you'll understand what's happening. Yeah, the stories <laughs> will start getting have, faster and faster. I have I have kicked the energy drink habit, and I, I found these these little like drink mixes that have about 120 milligrams of caffeine in them. So they're not going to make your heart skip a beat or none mm-hmm. of that, but it's just enough caffeine to, you know, get, get you through that uh, afternoon evening lull. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, our first story tonight comes from Jay. All right. Jay says this happened 27 years ago. Wow. I was in college, and if it's okay, would like to refrain from saying where, simply because I don't think this story would go well with their marketing material. I can tell you that it was in Pennsylvania. It's a story that to this day, I don't believe anyone who has heard it, which is few and far between, truly believe it. Sharing this with anyone is sure to have me labeled as a kook or a crackpot. Except in the graveyard. Except in the graveyard. Jay says, I was attending school at a very small art school, and they did not have their own dorms. There were several options of where you could stay, so I chose another college as I wanted to have the true dormitory experience rather than an apartment lifestyle. There were two main buildings where the dorms were housed, along with classrooms, cafeterias, student lounges, etc. During the summer months, any student from other schools could choose which building they wanted to live. I chose the building where this took place, knowing that come August, I'd have to move out. The rooms were nicer, no air conditioning, but the higher up floors had great views. I was on floor 14, and I loved it. Eventually, I had to relocate to a less attractive room and one with a roommate. And we had problems from the start, which I won't get into. I went to school and asked for a different living situation, and the only thing they had was a single room in the building I had spent the summer in, so I jumped at it. It was one of the two rooms that were actually past the exit doors and in the area of the stairwell. It was a tiny room with a lot of city light coming in, but it was worth it to be away from the crazy roommate. 
The very next summer rolled around and I once again decided to keep going through school. So I was allowed to stay in my room, but was approached by the head RA to ask if I'd be interested in a paid gig as an RA for a few summer programs. This college housed high school students who were there for summer camps and programs. I jumped at the chance. So I was trained, went through classes and orientation on being a resident advisor and received my four-week assignment. Each week was a different group. So this was the second week and I already knew I had this. Easy as pie. Other than a random student trying to sneak out and head to someone else's room, there really wasn't anything I couldn't handle until one particular night. The head RA came by to chat and walked into my room. I usually had the door open so I could just get any kind of breeze. There was no AC on the 14th floor in the summer, but mainly because I had always told my kids that I had an open door policy. After he left, I actually shut the door and laid down on the bed and remember exactly what I was doing. I was just in my underwear because it was so hot and I hit play on the CD player, Nirvana. Nice city glow coming in and I actually didn't have any pressing projects to work on. Then a knock on the door. I jump up and threw some clothes on and opened the door and there was a student a girl. I actually remembered her from orientation on our floor. She was easy on the eyes, but something was different. She wasn't trying to impress anyone and wasn't impressed by much. Honestly, she seemed like an old soul, if that makes sense, and she seemed disturbed or bothered. I had asked her the questions I was supposed to, trained to when she finally shook off the idea of being there. I asked her if she wanted to go back to her room, and she said yes. Protocol was to walk the student back and make sure they went into their room. She did not have a roommate as per request by her parents. I walked back the long hallway to my room when I heard it. It was a chilling scream and a sound of something falling and a loud bang. I couldn't tell where it came from, so I ran into my room to dial up the head RA. While I'm talking to him, a student is standing in my doorway and said that she heard something next to her room. I hung up and ran down the hall. It was the same girl's room. I knocked and knocked and then went to open the door and it was locked. The head RA was the only one with a master key, so I told the students who had all come out of the rooms curious to try and keep knocking as I ran down the hall back to my room to make the call. The head RA said he was coming up, and when he got there, the RA from the floor below mine was already there, a female. So as he was able to open the door, we sent her in, and she wasn't in the room. One large room. So she opened the bathroom door, and the girl was laying in the bathtub, fully clothed but traumatized. The curtain ripped off and around her, and she was shaking. The experienced RAs knew it. Drugs. They called 911 and I had to call her parents. She was taken to the hospital and I was told to stay in my room for any phone calls while the female RA went through her belongings. Sure to find something, but there was nothing. Her parents were on the way, hours though, when I received a call from the head RA who was at the hospital. He told me she finally started talking, not very clear but kept mentioning him, in quotes, 
and a necklace. She said she didn't want the necklace over and over. She said that he was standing outside of her window holding a necklace, motioning for her to wear it. Do you remember what floor I said this was on? The 14th? Impossible. We were tasked to go back in a room with, the, with security when it happened. The security guard, an older gentleman who was nothing more than mall police, said, hey, Yuns, look here. Outside of the window, hanging on the window latch, was a necklace. Here's what you need to know. These windows don't open. Bolted, shut, sealed tight, housing college students for good reason. A call was made to the resident maintenance guy on staff, and he came and about 15 minutes later had the window open and was holding the necklace. While I saw it in person, it was immediately handed over to a few college officials who made their way to the scene. And of course, I never saw it again. From what I know, she was going to be fine and was going to head home early with her parents. One of the female RAs was charged with packing up everything for her. And even after that, nothing was found along the lines of drugs or alcohol. Even if she had some type of breakdown that night, there was still no way to open that window and hang a necklace outside of it. Of course, if she had the proper tools and knowledge to do so, she could have, but who brings power tools to a summer workshop? Not to mention, what good would it do? Either the most elaborate hoax ever that still has me thinking about it 27 years later, or it was something that will never be able to explain, be able to be explained. Said, man, I wonder where that necklace is today. All I know is I don't think I would want it in my possession. No kidding. That's crazy. man. That is crazy. Now, listen, Jay, I got to be honest. I thought, man, if, if you've, if you've written this long story and it doesn't have a payoff, I'm going to be disappointed, <laughs> but man, that is nuts. I know. I know. I mean, I mean the, the necklace on the outside of the window kind of seals it. It couldn't be opened. Right. On the 14th floor. Right. And if it's hanging off the ledge of the window, then it's not easy, easily seen. So it's not like she would have just glanced and have seen it and added that into some story or what. I mean, that's crazy. Some guy, she says, outside her window trying to get her to take a necklace that I don't know what kind of what it could have been, you know, what what kind of entity no, I, I, could have done that I, I i don't i don't either but that's that's really bizarre all right so the next one we got here is from sr and it says in september 2016 i traveled to paris france with three other women during the trip we spent one day at the palace of versailles the infamous residence of king louis the 14th um, as you can imagine the buildings and grounds have an incredible amount of history tied to them. We walked the grounds on a self-guided tour, doing our best to use the very basic map that we were provided. However, the property is massive and it's easy to get lost. Now, at one point, we found ourselves walking down a shaded alleyway that ran alongside a building. We had started at the back of the building and we were making our way toward the front. And while we were in this alley hidden from any other tourist motorized vehicles 
and other indications of the current day, I realized how easy it would be to imagine that we had traveled back in time. The feeling in that alley was like nowhere else on the property. It felt dark, oppressive, claustrophobic, and very lost. It was suddenly incredibly quiet. No sounds of other people, even though it was a busy day at the palace with thousands of tourists. We kept consulting our map and trying to get reorientated to our surroundings. But that deep feeling of being lost persisted for several minutes. We finally kept going and made it out to the front of the building. The facade became visible, and we figured, figured out that we had ended up at uh, Petit Trianon. Um, that building was famously used as the exclusive retreat for Marie Antoinette. Now, while we didn't recall seeing anything paranormal, that oppressive, dark, lost feeling stayed with us afterwards. Well, a few years after the trip, I was on, the, on an internet rabbit hole of, quote, scary history stories, and I stumbled upon this story. And I realized that the description of where the woman claimed to experience a time slip was exactly where we had experienced the feeling of being lost and out of place. I recall my friends mentioned having the same feeling in that alley, having a strong reaction to the specific part of the property. I can't imagine it's a coincidence. Mm. Yeah, no. So we and we've heard uh, several stories that say it gets eerily quiet prior to a paranormal experience or time slip or right. a dimensional slip or something like that. So I, I, I think she might be right that she had something happen there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if it was, was brief, um, you know, that I've had times like that where I, I can't remember, you know, the last like 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, you, you, re, you, you kind of wake up out of it and realize that the last thing you did was, you know, minutes or even hours ago. Right. And you're just kind of like, what the heck? What's, what was I doing? Yeah. And you can't recall. I do that sometimes driving like that. Yeah. Like driving I'll, what? when I'm driving, yeah. I'll be driving and I don't realize how I got to where I got. You know, yeah. and I, I, know, I know you can just kind of zone out and be thinking about something else, but in, in her case, actively paying mm-hmm. attention and trying to read the map and still not having any clue where she was and all that. I, it, it's like she said, it's hard to believe that it's a coincidence. Right. Right. All right. Uh, our next story comes from KR. KR says, I want to share with you something I did post a while back on your Facebook group page. I want to preface that for the, that I want to preface that for the longest time, uh, I've been a bit more sensitive to things. For instance, when my husband and I went to the Holocaust museum in Washington, DC, I felt all the emotions by walking through that one box car that they had there. My story for you is something that, happened during my teenage years though actually two short ones the first one uh is when i was i uh the first one is when i was visiting some relatives i was sitting alone i was babysitting my cousin while my aunt and uncle went to work and playing a game of solitaire at their kitchen table i happened to look down and out of the corner of my eye i saw a pair of hands and it looked like 
Someone was looking over my shoulder at how the cards were laid out. They had rings on and looked solid. Needless to say, I was shaken when they, were, when they disappeared. The second is when I was visiting my husband's parents' cottage. It's a house. We call them cottages in northern Wisconsin. Uh, she says, I was rounding a corner that led from the walk out basement into the finished basement area. I looked and saw a tall shadow figure and knew it wasn't anyone I was there with. We are all short people. And it was gone in a second. Apparently, I might have met the former owner of the place. In my later years, 20s on, I seem to have always had a knack of knowing when something is going to happen. First, it was when my great-grandmother passed away and allowed my grandma to answer the phone instead of me answering it like normal. Recently, though, I will randomly get a feeling that there is a shift and something is going to happen, like a death or something else. So, I, you know, that that's one of those things that I've, I've dealt with is is getting that weird feeling that something is happening. Not that something's going to happen. I, I don't know that I've ever had a true premonition that, you know, I thought something was going to happen. And then later on it did, but I have felt like really strange. And maybe I thought about something or someone that I hadn't seen in a while. And then I find out that, something happened to them. Right. Or, you know, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's a weird, it's a hard thing to explain. It's just kind of that funny feeling. Maybe you think about an old friend that you haven't seen in a while. And, uh, then you find out like a week later, Oh, you know, they, they died or mm-hmm. something, something unusual happened. And it was probably roughly the time that you had that feeling. Okay. So this next one, is from a guy who's written in a few times. So he obviously doesn't have an issue with us using his name, but I'm going to stick with the initials. And Matt, you will know who this is when I say it's R. McG. Oh, yeah. Old R. McG. Our old buddy, R. McG. Right. Now, he says, as you guys know, I've been a cop in South Florida for a little over 22 years. I love to share on-duty stories as these are rarely told outside of the station and locker room. This story is from when I was a detective for 10 years in the violent crime and homicide division. It says, years back, I was called to a residence where a male had been found hanging in a tree. I responded to the scene to determine if this was a suicide or something more nefarious. Patrol was on scene and advised me uh, the neighbor had called it in as they were walking their dog and found the male in the tree. No contact had been made inside the house, and the vehicle outside was registered to the male who looked to a male who looked similar to the male uh, by the identification on file as the male in the tree. Now, upon looking inside the back door of the residence, which was locked, I saw several envelopes with names printed on them on the counter, as well as a handwritten note. This, due to my training and experience, was consisted consistent with a suicide as most leave behind multiple notes for family members, etc. Now, I went to the front door, and it was also locked and deadbolted. 
I called for breaching tools to check the interior of the residence as I was told by neighbors that the decedent also had a girlfriend who was yet accounted for. The girlfriend's vehicle was also on scene in front of the residence. Concerned this may be a murder-suicide, we needed to check the interior of the residence. Two officers stood uh, the front and rear door waiting on the breaching tools to enter. When the breaching tools arrived, we went to the rear door to pry it open, and I saw the deadbolt, which had been thrown, was now unlocked. The door handle was also unlocked. The officers on scene were perplexed because they had tried them also. There was also not electronic locks at the house um, because it had been restored to its original historic condition. Now, we entered and cleared the house for other victims and didn't locate anyone. We even checked the attic crawl space, all closets, and under the beds as we were sure someone had to have opened the door when we were not looking. I checked the rear door and found it was key operated on the inside as well as the outside, and there were no keys inside the door on the interior of the house. And we went back outside after locating the notes and letters left on the counter explaining the suicide. We closed the door to wait for crime scene to photograph the residence as it was hot and did not want the house to warm up for the crime scene text. Upon their arrival, we went to enter the house to only find it locked, and you guessed it, deadbolted again, front and back. We again called for breaching tools and stood officers by the doors. When the tools got there, the doors on the back side were again open. We again cleared the house methodically as we were sure we missed someone. No one was located. I told the officers to empty the closets, lift the beds, and check for missed crawl spaces or a location someone could hide. No one was located. The attic space was again cleared. The medical examiner arrived and removed the mail from the tree. I left to make family notifications. I was later informed by other detectives on scene that the locking of the door happened once more when the family arrived on scene. Upon speaking with the family, we were told that they, quote, wouldn't be surprised about the activity as the male who was deceased was fanatical about his house and about having no one come inside, but was even more fanatical about the meticulous restoration he had done on the house and would not want any damage done to the doors that were restored. After speaking to the family, we could only assume that this was him not wanting us in the house, but also not wanting us to break the door down to do our jobs, hence the unlocking of the doors. This incident was not discussed after it happened by several of the detectives and patrol officers on scene. So some of them went, no, not happening. (laughs) This didn't happen. I'm not acknowledging that it happened. Uh, (laughs) We're not talking about it. I always like uh, R. McGee's um, stories. I know. He's got he's got some of the best stories, you know. I mean, he's just from from both ends, and without giving too much away, um, he is not only a, a police officer; he is a paranormal investigator. So, right. talk about somebody with some stories. He's got them. Yeah, no I kidding. Mean, <laughs> and uh, and th- thanks for sending in another one. He he's I think he's probably made it every year. Oh, yeah. And I hope he continues sending them in because I I love reading them. Yeah. All right. So this next one comes to us from CF. 
So I just had a weird experience over the past weekend that I think would be great for this holiday episode. I do need to preface this with some background. My boyfriend, who is also a longtime listener, is at Mayo Clinic with some crazy health issues. I won't get into it here, but all I will say is that it seems serious, and I haven't heard anything since late last week. His uncle was the one who broke the news about my boyfriend being at the Mayo Clinic to me. Um, and uh, she writes, I hope at the time of this episode that he'll be recovered at home again. So do we. So Saturday night, she says, this is October 15th, 2022. So, you know, just about a month and a half yeah, ago. Very recent. Our time. Yeah. I was in bed, dead asleep. I had this experience both out of body and in body within a span of maybe 30 seconds to a minute. I felt a presence in my room. Then I was in the corner of my room, kind of by the ceiling. I think so at this point, I'm out of my body and I saw this figure loom over my bed. It was a shadow figure, at least from what I could see from this viewpoint. He was bending over my bed almost like he was trying to see my face or something. As I snapped back into my body, this figure whispered in my ear, I'm in the room. Note, I was dead asleep before seeing this figure, and I don't remember waking up or anything, but I do remember telling this figure, go away, before going right back into a deep sleep. Now, the reason why I mentioned my partner being in Mayo Clinic is because the, I think the figure I saw was the Grim Reaper. The figure had a hooded cloak on. When he said, I am in the room, at the time, I just thought he said, my room. But later, I think he may have met my partner's room. I've spoken to a couple of people since this encounter. One friend, who is a fellow witch, said that although she does not believe in the Grim Reaper, the death card in tarot has the reaper on it. And that, that card means that there is a dramatic or drastic change upcoming. Another friend suggested that I do a tarot reading myself to see what it comes up with. He also said that by saying, go away, I asserted my power over the figure, which is the best thing to do in this situation. As for my partner, I'll keep you guys updated. His name is John, and as I mentioned previously, he is also a longtime listener of the show, and he loves you guys. I'm just hoping that seeing the Grim doesn't indicate anything bad that's coming. So do we. That's right. And, um, you know, there, there are ideas that the, the figure of the Grim Reaper is, is based on some older folklore that it's not one entity. It's, multiple entities mm -hmm. and that these reapers are kind of like the kind of like uh, what, what what's the the greek mythology uh, is it Koron or chiron that you cross the river sticks yeah i think um, i can't remember that, off the top of my head that he's he's not the death bringer he is 
the traveler. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's the I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to help you go to the other side. Right. And that these entities um that they surround death to carry those spirits, you know, to the other side, to the spirit realm. Um you know, it, it it's really up to what you know your thought process is. Um, some people have this idea of the angel of death. It's the same thing. Um, but with the out of body experience, shadow figures are very, very common. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't immediately go to a reaper. Right. You know, I would say more or less a, a shadow person. Um, because it was associated with the out of body experience. Right. Because when, when, when we did our show on, on, uh, NDEs and, and out of body experiences, um, the, the shadow figures come up quite often. Mm-hmm. Right. I think you're right. Um, I think they can be mistaken for a reaper of some sort. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think you may, you may be on the right track there, Matt. I think you are. Um, now the next one I got comes from JG and in a minute, you'll realize that Matt's next one comes from a JG as well. They're two different people. Just go ahead and say that. So (laughs) if you're listening and you are JG, then it's either this one or the one Matt's got. So it's a roulette game here. We'll figure out which one's yours. Now this says I'm from Long Island, New York, and no, my story doesn't involve the Amityville Horror House. <laughs> it says I worked at Winthrop Hospital, which was originally Nassau Hospital, and our department was on the main floor of the original building. When our department moved buildings, we were left behind with one other scheduling office. I had off hours between other shifts, so I spent several hours alone in our area. There was one door in and out that needed to be opened with a key card. An elevator one would need to call to our floor or the fire stairs. For about two weeks, every night at 530 or so, there there would be a light knock on my door. I'd take the three steps across my office and open the door to find nobody there. There were no nooks or crannies for anyone to duck into, and the hallway led down about 40 feet to the rest of the building. Well, one night, I was in the middle of something and got frustrated, so when the knock came, I opened the door and said, I'm really sorry, but I'm not a nurse. There's nobody in the office who can help you anymore. Please let me do my work. I never got the knock again as long as I was there. Incidentally, We found out during the East Coast blackout in the early 2000s that our office had been an old nurse's station and our floor had been used for geriatric palliative care. Hmm. So that's kind of cool. So so that knock probably happened frequently. Yep. Yep. You know, it was probably at that time something that happened quite often. Yep. And... It may just be repeating it. Medicine times or something. And yeah, yeah. It, it could have been a the, the stone tape thing, just repeating it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So now for the, the second JG. And uh, my JG says, hmm. I wanted to share an experience I had some years ago. It was 2006 and I was working in the coal mines in Queensland, Australia. Ooh, coal mines. That's that's rough work. What a job, man. 
I was working an even time roster of five days on and five off. The, the mine I was working in was over six hours drive from my home. So accommodation was always provided. Our accommodation at the time was what I would describe as a kit style home. Small, very basic, two bedrooms in a rectangular shape. As you walk in, the two bedrooms take up the entire left side and are only separated by the bathroom and toilet. On the right was a small laundry, then the kitchen, followed by the dining lounge area. As I said, very basic. I was in the second bedroom that backed onto the lounge room. As we moved in, the beds were still in boxes in each room. We had to put them together. I placed my bed in the corner of the room with one side running along the wall that backed onto the lounge room, and I settled in. Not a lot happened initially, just little things. The day after we moved in, I was in the bathroom sitting on the throne when the bathroom window just flew open with quite some force. Glad you were sitting on the toilet when that happened. (laughs) How convenient was that? (laughs) oh it was a double hung window and if not latched properly can sometimes just pop open so i figured it was just that but i definitely took notice apart from that not much happened in the first few months just some residual things like the sound of heavy boots walking through the house but no one was there because mines run 24 7 when i was home on days off my room would be occupied by another worker. He would always move the bed from where I had it and place the head of the bed against the wall to the lounge with all sides open to the room. This will become important. After a few months of moving the bed back and forth, I just started leaving it where he had it. This is where the stuff really started to hit the fan. In the dead of the night, whilst in a deep sleep, I was being woken up with the bed shaking vigorously underneath me and sleeping on my stomach. It would make my breathing go all staggered. Still being quite dazed, I would just drift off back to sleep after it stopped as if it was a crazy dream. This went on most nights for a week or so. I was at work. Not much was happening when the whole bed shaking thing just popped into my head. And I remember thinking, I need to check out what's really going on. That night, I got back to the house and was on my own, so I looked at what possibly could be causing the bed to shake. First, I jumped up and down on the floor to see if that made the bed move. It didn't. So I said out loud, that's not it. Then I grabbed hold of the bed frame and gave it a good shove, but it was solid, not one bit of wobble. Again, I said out loud, no, that's not it either. Then I got down beside the bed and took hold of the mattress. I shoved it back and forth and said out loud, that's it. The bloody mattress is being shoved side to side. That night, being a lot more aware of the situation, I thought, if it wakes me up, I'll be paying more attention. Well, I was once again woken to the shaking bed. It was really going for it. But this time, when the shaking stopped, Though the blankets felt the, through the blankets, I felt the pressure of a hand come down on my feet and the second hand down on the back of my knees 
as it was coming down on top of me from the end of the bed. Eesh. I could feel a very intense negative energy at the back of my neck. I didn't dare move a muscle. It then lifted off. The room was pitch black, and I just stayed where I was and waited for the morning to come. It was sending me a very strong message that night. It was intelligent, and it was watching my every move. After that night, I shifted the bed back to my original position, thinking it would stop the mattress from shaking, and it did. A lot of things would continue to happen, and you could definitely feel it when it was in the room. I was watching TV one morning after night shift. Everything was normal. Then I could feel it move in beside me. I turned my head and felt as though we were face to face. And once again, that energy was so intense. I lived there for 12 to 18 months. A lot would happen in that time. It would send unusual alarm. It would, it would set unused alarm clocks off uh, just to piss me off and wake me up. They had no power or batteries and had never been used in all the time I was there. It was a real menace at times. Not long before I moved out, I was working nights. I was woken up to the feeling of someone being in my room. I sat straight up in bed and gasped as I saw the entity for the very first time. It was always careful not to let itself be seen. It was walking past my bed to head out the door. It's hard to describe, but it was a humanoid figure, but looked like a blue electricity just in a human shape. Weird. Said it was also small, about five feet. It stopped as I gasped, turned to look at me, and then launched itself on top of me and tried to choke me before I threw it off and it vaporized. At that point, I'd had more than enough. And when I was asked if I wanted a transfer to a new contract, I took it. In 2018, I was working with someone who lived in that house with me. We never spoke about the things that went on back then, but I asked him if he had also experienced anything in the house. He had a wild-eyed look as he threw his arms out and said, it would come down on top of me in bed. I nearly died as he said that. I couldn't believe it. In a way, I was glad it wasn't just me because it helps uh, know that I wasn't going crazy. He proceeded to tell me some crazy things that happened after I had left. It was, it was a wild place indeed with a nasty entity that I'm sure torments people today. Good grief. I've not ever heard of an electric-looking entity. Have you? Not something like he described, no. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I've heard of like shiny ones that are kind of silverish, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, you get the blue mist thing, but not blue yeah. electricity type entity. That's, I don't know what yeah, that not, is. Not, and not blue in a humanoid form. Right. That's, that's very unique. Usually and, like uh, a ball lightning is the blue electricity you, mm -hmm. you see like a ball or orb yeah but it's still not a human form right and it's certainly not gonna attack you right um man that is just that is crazy i know 
I can't say that I've heard any any other stories quite like that. No, especially with the with the amount of physical assault that comes along with it. Yeah, that that's new to me. I'm I'm glad you made it out uh, with all that. The the like Matt said, the physical assault that's happening. I'm I'm glad you got out of there. All right, this next one comes from B. It says now I was 13 or 14 years old. I'm 33 now. But this was always uh, this will always stand out to me due to the nature of the event. My parents bought their fir- first home, a wartime home, when I was entering uh, the second grade. The house was small but comfy, perfect for them and my brother and myself. The backyard had two sheds in it. One was a small barn-themed kind, super cool for my brother and I, and it was a massive fort. You know, they turned it into a massive fort. The second one was a small shed in the back left corner of the yard. My dad made it his work man cave shed. He took down the larger one and took the wood from it and built my brother and I a small tree fort. Okay, so I now have the backyard with a little shed in the left corner. Now let's fast forward to when I was 13 or 14 years old. My parents were going to a party at their friend's house. I was planning to hang out with my friend at the house. Now we were both in love with the band Corn. And since my parents were gone, we got to listen to the albums loud on my dad's system in the living room. We honestly sat there all day listening to corn and talking. So now the sun is setting and they say, okay, small pause. I need to give you the layout of the room for a visual. Small wartime homes are one level. So uh, they say, walk with me here. We are at the front door. You step into the house into a small hallway. Walk five feet. Left side is a door to my brother's room. Right is an even smaller hallway leading to my room and my parents and the bathroom. Okay, we are still standing in the main hallway. Keep walking straight. We are in the kitchen. Keep walking onward. We are now passing a small door on the left. Laundry closet. Keep going forward. The hallway opens into a larger room, being the living room on the right, and left is a small nook for the dinner table. Windows all around the exterior wall. This is all the living room has, uh, the sofa on the exterior wall, and the TV unit and stereo on the wall direct directly in front of it on the interior wall of the house. It says, okay, back to the story. The sun is setting. We are sitting on the sofa. Corn is playing. I'm on the left side of the sofa. My friend, he is on the right. All of a sudden, I couldn't speak. This very, very dark shadow Uh, shadow form came from the kitchen into the hallway connecting the living dining room uh, together the shadow was a massive figure like six feet tall and bigger as it got closer to me i could see the spirit a larger man wearing a flannel type jacket and a trucker type hat he was like a dark muted color in his right hand there was something shiny as i'm seeing this in my eyes are watering. I can't move. I can't talk. It feels like I have a lump or something caught in my throat. Couldn't scream if I wanted to. And believe me, I wanted to. Then as it gets a couple feet from me, he disappears. Then I realize from this frozen state, uh, and I turn to my friend and he says to me, Hey, did you see that? Hey, you okay? Why are you in tears? I was like, you saw him too. And he said, saw who? I didn't see anyone, but I did see sparks coming from the outlet on the wall. So happening on the left side 
of the room. So his vision was distracted and not looking my way. I said, no, you didn't see the guy. So my friend had an energy surge experience from the outlet on the wall, whereas I saw this big, dark shadow man. Now, my parents stopped off at home an hour or so after this to pick something up that they forgot, and I told them the whole story. They thought it was me being silly and making stuff up, as I had told my parents before that I saw my great-grandmother on a few occasions a couple years before. I think it just scared my mom. They talked to our neighbor across the street from us about what had happened, and the neighbor told my parents that there was a man who lived in their house years ago, and he went to prison for something that was unrelated to what um, is said next, apparently, is what they're saying. Uh, He used to pay kids money to take them in the shed. That's as far as I'm going to go. He was a taller, bigger guy that met the same description as the spirit I saw. I never knew of this story, nor did I see any old photos, etc. I would uh, would not have had any prior knowledge. It was the wildest experience I had with a dark spirit or residue of a person's energy, etc. I've had dark things happen when I use divination tools. None froze me quite like this one did. I never saw the spirit again in that house. Man. What about the outlet? Yeah. Sparking out like that. That's what I was going to say. The I mean, fact that, that she saw one thing and he saw something else. That yeah. that's pretty, pretty wild. I, I think what they both saw was just energy. Yep. You know, that, that, you know, that the way a spirit would make a, a light flicker, um, something like that. You know, this one obviously had enough energy that it, it was able to, interfere with the electrical workings of the house right you know causing a spark um or maybe that was a full intent you know maybe the idea was i'm going to distract one and appear to the other yep uh it's it's like that's crazy it's like we see with some ufo encounters where Mm -hmm. somebody will see the ufo but then somebody else gets like a screen memory of a flipped over car burning on the side of the road instead of right. a UFO. And that's what it reminds me of is she was supposed to see the entity. He was not. Yeah. So he saw yeah. the electrical surge. She saw what it really was. Yep. Ooh, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Ricky. All right. Now, uh, this one comes from TT. TT says, I have a few stories, albeit small ones, all centered around the house I grew up in and still live in. This one didn't happen to me, but to my sister, and it's a very quick one. In 2002, our grandfather passed away, and the night of his passing, he visited my older sister, spoke to her for about 10 minutes, and while I've never been told the full extent of the conversation, I do know He told her to be strong and help keep the family together in the difficult time we were experiencing. That's cool. I've had experiences like that. Yep, you have. This one involves myself and another of my sisters. Sometime around 2007 or so, we had a desktop PC set up in the dining room, which we would all use for different things. One evening, I was in the kitchen adjoining the dining room, cleaning some dishes. And my sister was at the computer 
working on a school paper. She left the desk to make a cup of tea. And while we were both in the kitchen, we heard what sounded like footsteps followed by the distinct clacking sound of a keyboard. Sure as anything, the screen had an assortment of random characters on it, which although they didn't form words or anything significant, it was rather scary to see in an empty room. Well, sure. Yeah, it is. But my favorite, the longest, and the most personal of all, one night around 1 a.m., I woke up from my sleep and needed to use the bathroom. So I went from my bedroom to the bathroom, and when exiting the bathroom, I could make out the shape of my three-year-old niece approaching from her room to go into the bathroom. So I moved aside so she could get past. I distinctly remember feeling her brush past my arm. I went back into the bedroom and could hear the sound of the bathroom door opening and shutting. When I was back in bed, I heard from the next room the sound of my other niece moving in her bunk bed, followed by the distinct sound of the niece I thought had passed me in the hallway beginning to cry in her own bed on the bottom bunk. To this day, I don't know what I saw and felt, but the thought of it sends a shiver up my spine every time it comes to mind. The house I live in definitely has definitely got some unseen occupants. Um, we are familiar with, it says both ones we are familiar with and unfamiliar with. Over my 25 years of life, I've seen grandparents I never met. I've seen my grandfather, who I have a vague memory of, and I've seen shadow people as much as twice a week since I was a child. Wow. Living in a quote-unquote haunted house isn't something everybody can handle. But in this particular case, it feels almost comforting knowing that grandparents I never got to meet are still hanging around and keeping an eye on the family. Uh-huh. And that is cool. And that, that's an awesome way to look at it. Yeah. Um, you, know, that's, you know, my family does the same thing, you know, with... Uh, with the house that I grew up in, we just kind of accept it and we make the assumption that uh, over, you know, the 40 some odd years that my parents have lived in that, in that house, um, what, whatever is there is, is not dangerous, malicious. It's almost protective. So we, we just kind of learn to accept it. and. It, everything's okay. Now I realize not everybody is as fortunate and that some of the, uh, some of the activity people experience in their homes is, uh, just a huge upheaval. Um, but you know, I, I think, you know, living in this house and, and understanding that maybe the spirits of grandparents still reside there. Uh, it is, it is good. It is comforting. Right. So I think that's, I think it's a great story. And I I like the um the thought that maybe it was a doppelganger or out of body experience with the the niece because mm-hmm. you know if you're dreaming about having to go to the bathroom then sometimes you dream really intently that you're walking to the bathroom and using the bathroom maybe she did she was having that dream and actually out of body experience walked astral projected herself 
into the bathroom. Yeah. And what I would want to know is, did she wake up and start crying because she was wet? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And, and she projected herself going to the bathroom, but that doesn't empty your physical bladder. Right. Right. But when, when her projected self got there, she relaxed and woke up wet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Man, that is cool. That is kind of cool. I mean, I hate, I hate it, you know, for a little kid, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's crazy cool. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't know exactly if that's what happened, but I'm just speculating, but that, that would be a neat way to, yeah, <laughs> to take right. that story. <laughs> All right. So this next one comes from KK. It says, I wrote in last year about my haunted preschool. I hope you remember me because I have a lot more stories and you guys are probably going to be hearing from me annually for a while now. There's no stopping this train now. <laughs> Bring it on. We're, we love it. it. says, I wanted to share a story that I found very sweet rather than scary. To start, my husband and I are both preschool teachers. This means that unfortunately we will never be millionaires, but it's okay because we don't do it for the money. When we got married... We spent a good deal of, of time saving up to purchase my wedding ring. It's a unique piece crafted by an individual jeweler in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I had to have it. This ring is my most prized possession. I always know where it is, and it never leaves my finger for more than a few moments. I can't express how much I love this ring. One night, I went to bed as usual with no suspicion that anything was amiss. I woke up quite suddenly in the middle of the night for no apparent reason. I realized that my wedding ring was not on my finger anymore. Thinking that maybe I'd accidentally left it on the kitchen counter after cooking dinner, I rushed to check. The ring wasn't there. I woke my husband up, tearing the blankets off the bed and throwing the pillows aside, looking for my ring, wondering if maybe it had slipped off my finger while I was asleep. No ring. Distraught, I turned on every light in the apartment and tore the place apart, searching every corner, nook, and cranny in search of my ring. After over an hour of searching, my husband and I turned up nothing. I was inconsolable. I thought my ring must uh, be gone for good, but I had no idea how it had gotten lost in the first place. I cried myself back to sleep that night. I'm normally a pretty heavy sleeper, so something as light as a touch of a hand isn't enough to wake me. However, I woke up again a few hours later feeling a very light touch in the palm of my hand. I'd fallen asleep on my back with my hand open on the top of my covers. Half asleep and very confused, I looked at my hand. Resting gently in my palm was my wedding ring. I immediately woke my husband up overjoyed to have my prized possession back. When my husband saw the ring in my hand, he said, Your grandma must have found it for you. And I think that my husband is 100% right. My grandmother, who had passed away several years earlier, had quite a taste for expensive jewelry which she rarely ever let anyone else touch. I inherited several of her favorite pieces upon her passing. I believe that my grandmother saw how upset I was and understood how much I needed my ring back. Although I'm still at a loss as to how it disappeared in the first place, I'm happy to say that my ring is still on my finger and hasn't disappeared since. Happy holidays. Man, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I've had, I've had situations like that happen where you lose something and you you look and you look and you look and it, then you just kind of ask the air, please, can I have this back? And then it comes back. So yeah, I, I think that's uh, I think it's fantastic. 
Yeah. Get, get the ring back from your grandmother. Yeah. All right. Adam, our next story comes from MF. <laughs> you know, that was my great grand, uh, grandfather's initials. And when was it? When I was a kid, uh, his name was Maurice Frank. And when I was a kid, I used to hear him complaining to my great grandmother that everybody called him MF. And I had no idea what that meant yet. <laughs> and then when I got older and learned, he had already passed away. But I was like, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a, it's unfortunate, you know, when you're when your initials, you know, coincide with, you know, a term like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in MF, we're not going to call you that. Nope. So MF says. My grandparents lived in a farmhouse in California that dated back to the 1800s. Through the years, it had undergone a lot of expansions and repairs. And when they bought it, it was a two-bedroom house with an attic and a basement, as well as outbuildings that had been used as housing for farmhands and such. My grandfather continued with remodels, one of which was turning the attic into a sewing room slash library slash office my grandmother and himself. Now, I would love to say that the basement came into play here, but it does not. Of course, it was one of those infinitely dark, humid, and scary as all get out, but I avoided it as it was, but I avoided it as much as humanly possible. Still, the house to me always had an odd feeling or atmosphere. All the stereotypical things, feeling watched, hearing weird things from empty parts of the house, and just the overall feeling that there was someone or something nearby. But the one occasion that really stuck with me was when my grandmother died of a brain hemorrhage when I was five or six. This was my first experience with the death of someone near and dear to me, and I tried to wrap my juvenile mind around the idea that I would never see my grandmother again. Who I was very close to and loved very much. And what I now recognize as a form of grief and attempt at acceptance, I had gone upstairs to the sewing room that was hers. I was up there by myself, just slowly walking around, taking in all the tools and books and knickknacks that grandparents had on display. But while looking out the window, I heard from behind me a soft yet audible sigh. Knowing that I was the only one in the house, the remaining family gone into town, and my grandfather outside in his workshop, my heart skipped a beat as I spun around, scanning the entire room, looking for the source of the sound. Again, I had the feeling that I wasn't alone, stronger than I had ever before. Yet it wasn't one that invoked worry of malevolent intent. Even so, I raced down the stairs and out of the house. I refused to ever go upstairs alone again and was adamant to never be left alone in the house. Looking back now, considering the lack of any hatred or anger in the presence and the softness of the sigh and where I was when I heard it, I'm rather sure that it was my grandmother making a quick stop to say goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Great story. That. I think, I think a lot of people have these experiences. I, I think that people will have these experiences when they lose someone close to them and they don't share it because mm. there's so much emotion tied to it that 
I think people overlook it. Right. And they, they don't realize what they've just experienced. And they, they maybe just feel like, well, I was just so emotional that, you know, I, I, I wanted it to be my, my grandmother or or whatever. Right. Um, but, but I think that a lot of people, if they really get down and be truthful to themselves, will realize that they've had a similar experience. Right. I agree. All right. So the next one comes from JK. Says the story I would like to share with you is about the flashlight kids and the time for which I had an encounter with one. Now, the flashlight kids are a local variant of the stories of the black eyed kids. I've heard about them in Nebraska a couple times, but despite my avid listening to paranormal podcast, I've yet to hear about them in any other state. I'm not certain when the first black eyed kids sighting was. I've never heard this or I have heard the story of the man who supposedly was the first to experience an encounter with them and how they approached his car outside a movie theater and frequently asked the man to let them in and how the tensions increased. He then realized the kids had no eyes, just merely black voids in their place. I am not sure of the year that it happened, but I first heard of the flashlight kids in 1996, a very long time before I had ever heard the story of the black eyed kids. Though on a timeline, I'm not sure which story actually predates the other. Well, in 1996, I was in an elementary school, and a girl I knew came running up the school walk while we were lined up waiting for our classes. Uh, classes turned to go inside. She was a big fan of spooky things, so she very excitedly started telling me the story of how her stepfather encountered a flashlight kid the night prior. I'd never heard of such a thing. Since she found me to be a receptive audience, she happily began to explain that the flashlight kids were children with no eyes. Instead, they just had black voids. Well, the flashlight kids would stand in an intersection and wait for somebody to come by. They preferred interacting with other children because they were easier targets, but would occasionally appear to adults. When someone happened to see the flashlight kids standing in the intersection, the flashlight kid would then start dancing and moving around, acting very energetic. Their dance involves uh, two very important aspects. One, they hold the flashlight right in front of their face with the light beam facing away from them. Uh, this is so the person witnessing them only sees a bright light and not the fact that the kid doesn't have eyes. And two, the flashlight kid's body language must appear to be as though the kid is having great fun dancing in the intersection and is greatly enjoying themselves. This is so the witness, especially curious children, will wonder what they are missing and will want to investigate and approach the flashlight kid. It reminds me of Tom Sawyer and how in the book he acted like painting the fence was fun so other kids would get interested and come over. Once the victim approaches the dancing flashlight kid, the flashlight kid would lower the flashlight, revealing their black eyes, and grab the victim. Then immediately, in a blink of an eye, the flashlight kid would take the victim to another dimension and a place far from what they know and understand. According to the story uh, that the little girl was telling me, children who were taken away never found their way back, and adults very rarely came, uh, came back either. With the flashlight kids thoroughly explained, she commenced her story on how her stepdad was repairing something after dark in the driveway. He was frustrated and definitely not having a fun time repairing what he was working on. He noticed a kid dancing in the intersection with a flashlight held near his face. The stepdad ignored the kid 
until it became too much of an annoyance, and he then stopped what he was doing to scold the kid, but the kid was gone. With absolutely no uh, spare time to have run off, the kid just disappeared. Fast forward to two summers ago, I got home after working late. I stopped my truck in my back driveway. I just received bad news through the through a text message about a family member who was in the hospital. So I sat in my truck, sorting through my feelings and drafting a reply to the text. The garage is angled in such a manner that if you look to my left while in the driveway, I can see the closest intersection. I noticed a boy, approximately 14 years old, judging by his build. He was dancing with a flashlight held in one hand near his face, beam facing toward me greatly limiting my visibility of the kid's face. He was facing me, and while dancing, he was appearing to be really into it and enjoying himself, judging by the playful way he was dancing, at least. Keep in mind, I had just received bad news through text after an extra long work day, so I wasn't in a good mood. One thing really stuck out to me, though, and that was the flashlight beam. I could tell it was an old flashlight. An LED flashlight is a noticeable, noticeably different beam in intensity and color compared to an old flashlight with a standard bulb. The beam reminded me of flashlights my dad kept in all his work trucks in the 90s. The old mag light uh, flashlights that were painted dark red were about a foot and a half long with heavy compared to modern flashlights and had a black push button that made a very audible click when pressed. That's what the beam of the flashlight reminded me of. I remember thinking, where in the heck did this kid get that, get that flashlight? That, that thing's probably as old as me. After about three minutes or so, this kid dancing with the beam directed at me, I got frustrated because uh, of the distraction, and I had been unable to reply properly to the bad news I just received a few minutes prior. In frustration, I remember muttering, Enough, kid. What the heck do you think? Uh, what the heck do you think you're one of the flashlight kids or something? Then I opened the truck door and got out. Uh, hoping my frustrated body language would be enough to discourage the kid and maybe he would quit shining that old flashlight at me. While out of the truck, I instantly realized the kid had vanished, and the tails of the flashlight kid suddenly got very real. I decided to quickly run over to the intersection to see if I could see what happened to the kid. I'm not a dummy, so I opted to cross to the other side of the street away from my house before I ran to the intersection just to put an extra 15 feet or so between me and the creepy kid. He was gone. He disappeared. In the short time that it took me to get out of my truck, the kid had disappeared. Now, standing in the intersection, I could see clearly in all four directions. He was nowhere to be found. I instantly got goosebumps. I couldn't see him, but I got this really weird feeling that I was being observed, so I went in my house. There's two things that stick out to me, along with two interesting possibilities that I've thought about. One, interdimensional spaces. A lot of paranormal things happen in the in-between spaces, crossroads, or... A intersection would definitely fit that definition. Absolutely. I agree mm-hmm. with that. The act of consenting in stories of black eyed kids, they ask to come into your car or house. If you refuse, they won't come in. You have a choice to consent to their entering, though it's obviously not advised. With a flashlight kids, you have to physically make the decision to approach them. They won't approach you. In both flashlight kids and black eyed kids stories, you have the choice to be a victim if, uh, if you choose. The two possibilities I've thought of to explain part of the phenomenon is maybe the flashlight kids can't speak. Black-eyed kids can ask to come in your house or car. Maybe the flashlight kids can't speak and instead try to tempt you into making the decision to come to them. Maybe bad vibes or dark energy 
has a lot to do with who the victim is. Dark entities will sometimes pick up on bad energy and use it as fuel. Keep in mind, I was reeling from the bad news I received about a sick family member. That I'll agree with that, too. Mm-hmm. It says, while that is interesting possibility, there's something that appears a little more likely to me than that. Maybe the flashlight kids use the fun dancing to encourage children to come investigate out of curiosity, and maybe they use frustration to get adults annoyed enough to approach them. It would make sense why I saw the kid when I was already upset and while my frustration probably already putting off bad vibes. Also, the stepdad in the schoolgirl story I first told in this email was frustrated working outside in the dark when the flashlight kid appeared, so there might be some sort of parallel there. In the end, I only have speculations and theories. P.S. My family member I mentioned beat the illness and got better. Yeah, good. That is an interesting uh, version of a black-eyed kid story. It sounds very similar to a B.E.K. story, but seems regionally different. Yeah, and I've I've not ever heard that particular variation of it. Um but I you know, I like your theories. Um you know, my my thought on the black-eyed kids has always been it's it it's some other type of entity that takes this form. Right. Um you know, whether to gain a closer access to the living or humans or whatever. Um, so it it very well could be. And, and I think that would, um, maybe not explain, but it it would, um, it it would, it would give a little bit of, um, validity to the variations based on region that, you know, if, if an entity, an intelligent entity, you know, is in a certain area. And if their goal is to lure people to them, they may do different things mm-hmm. based on where they are. Right. Um, you know, so maybe that's how, I, you know, I don't know. Again, I'm just speculating, but um, I've always felt that the black eyed kids were some, some type of entity that, you know, that was their whole purpose mm-hmm. was to, to lure people. But, you know, to what end? I don't know. Right. Right. I think without getting taken by one, you may not know. Yeah. And there's nobody running around going, Hey, guess what happened to me? Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) These black eyed kids are actually pretty cool. Yeah. They got me (laughs) drunk. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Something tells me it's not. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're right. All right, let's go to this one that comes to us from SG. SG writes, back in 2016, my best friend knew I was a diehard paranormal junkie and thought it would be fun to get me a Ouija board for my birthday. Mm. Looking back, I'm not sure it was the greatest gift. While our Ouija board session was mostly uneventful, the weeks that followed were some of the darkest and scariest I've ever encountered. Nevertheless, she brought it over, lit some candles, turned the lights off, and gathered around the board. For a long time, nothing happened. Anytime the planchette moved, we would laugh nervously and blame one another. At some point in the night, there was a marked change in the atmosphere of the room. 
We had an audio recorder rolling in hopes of capturing any EVPs during our session. I remember seeing my friend jump and say, what the hell was that? Something just touched me. After reviewing the audio from that moment, we heard my friend reacting to something touching her and then a small female voice saying, hi. Must be a little girl, right? Wrong. It's never just a little girl. No. It's, it started getting late, and we decided to wrap up the mostly uneventful session. Look, I think if you got touched by something, that, that qualifies as eventful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. We said our goodbyes to the spirit world and ended the session. There was a noticeable heaviness in the air that neither of us wanted to acknowledge. As I was getting ready to take my friend home, she thought it would be funny to pretend some tap water was holy water and sprinkled it around the room. I rolled my eyes and laughed nervously, told her she was being ridiculous, and we left. I dropped her off and still couldn't shake the feeling that I had made a grave mistake messing with that board. I come from a religious home, and while my parents aren't superstitious, they had one strict rule. No Ouija boards ever. Yeah. That's a good rule. I agree. (laughs) I was in my early 20s in my first apartment by myself, and I felt untouchable. On the drive home, I was listening to some more upbeat music in my car, trying to shake the bad feeling, when mid-song, my phone switched to a song that wasn't in my current playlist, Broken Bones by Kaleo. One of the lines in the song is, the devil's going to make me a free man. The devil's going to set me free. Wide-eyed, I decided I didn't need to listen to any more music on the drive home. Yep, I would have made I, the same, I, same decision. <laughs> yeah. I got home and was in the bathroom getting ready for bed. While I was changing, I was startled by a sudden splash of water in my face. I immediately started looking around the room and up at the ceiling looking for a source of water. I wasn't facing the sink and I couldn't find a leak in the ceiling, no source of the sudden spray of water. My mind immediately flashed to my friend jokingly splashing holy tap water around my studio apartment and had the distinct feeling that I was being mocked by something. That night, the dreams started. In my dream, I would wake up in my bed in my dark apartment and look towards the foot of my bed. In the doorway, about 15 feet away, just outside the reach of the light from the streetlights, was a dark shadow. I was immediately paralyzed with fear. As the shadow started creeping closer, I jolted awake, drenched in sweat. I looked toward the doorway, and there was nothing there. It was just a dream. I was just worked up from our uneventful spirit board session. The next few days, the dreams continued. Every night, the shadow in my dream would get just a little bit closer than the night before. Every time I woke up, it wasn't there. My tiny studio apartment was normal. My mood started to change. I became more irritable and depressed. I became almost obsessed with the spirit board. 
I continued to tell myself that it was all in my head. Then weird things started to happen around my apartment. My apartment building was built in the 1930s. No central heat and air, lead paint, and original wood floors. The windows were huge and heavy, the kind that you needed two arms and a strong back to open. One of the windows I had opened for a few weeks as the fall weather was in Minneapolis, where I was living at the time, was beautiful. My cat was laying in the window frame, enjoying the cool night air, when suddenly the window that had been open for weeks was slammed shut. Don't worry, somehow my cat used his cat-like reflexes. You know, cats don't have cat-like reflexes. Cats have cat reflexes. Yeah. <laughs> they, cats just have reflexes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, but it says my, my cat used his reflexes and was able to get out before it would have inevitably crushed him. My beloved cat and I were absolutely horrified. Still, I brushed the event off and told myself it was an old building. It could have been the house settling or trying to kill my cat. Either way, the whole event left a bad taste in my mouth. Sometime later, I was watching TV in bed when a huge commotion in the kitchen jolted my attention. It sounded like every pot and pan in my cupboard had collapsed to the floor all at once. I ran to the kitchen, assuming my cat had gotten into the cupboard, but when I got there, everything was in its place. Huh. The cupboard door was shut, and my cat was sitting in a chair in the bedroom, looking as confused as I was. The dreams continued. Every night, that creepy shadow continued to get closer to me before I woke up. One morning, while I was changing and getting ready for work, I noticed three four-inch scratches on my side. While I could have scratched myself, I keep my nails very short, so it was unlikely. Maybe it was my cat, but he never messed with me in my sleep, especially because I was always covered in blankets. I finally broke down and talked to my mom. As much as I wanted to keep this issue to myself, I had to tell someone. I needed my mom. I was spiraling into depression, and I was feeling so aggressive toward everyone around me. Of course, she scolded me for messing with the spirit board and immediately told me to get rid of that effing thing. And she prayed for me over the phone. I guess my mother's love gave me the strength to stand up for myself against whatever we had invited into my life that night. I summoned the courage and told whatever it was in my home, messing with me and my pets, to get the F out. I informed it that it was not welcome here and had no right to mess with me or my pets. My family isn't Catholic, but my mom made me this beautiful rosary-type cross that I hung in my apartment, which I still have to this day. Moral of the story, if you're curious about Ouija boards, watch a movie or read this story. When you use a spirit board, you are literally opening your entire home and existence to whatever crazy spirit or demon that wants to walk in. Yep. You might think you're talking to a loved one, but you can't know for sure, and it's not worth it. And, you know, Adam and I have said that many, many times on this show. We both have had 
negative experiences with Ouija boards. Uh-huh. And it's just, it's not a good idea. It doesn't. And truthfully, it doesn't matter if you believe or not. Right. Okay. I mean, belief in it doesn't make it real or not real. So why tempt fate? Right. I agree with you. Um, and it, it's very, very similar to stories we've heard about Ouija boards and yeah. Uh, it, it's one of the reasons that we say don't mess with them. All right. Thank you. Everybody that sent us stories. I mean, these are some fantastic stories. Oh yeah. I mean, we, we've had some good ones in the past, but I mean, consistently, you know, we're really seeing some, some great experiences. You can tell by the way these folks wrote them um, that, you know, it really touched them and they really felt uh, the experiences they had. Thank you so much for opening up and sharing that with not just Adam and myself, but with the entire graveyard. We really, really appreciate it. And don't forget, we've got more listener stories coming your way. Uh, So, so check back for episode two Mm -hmm. of listener stories. We've got more stories coming. So don't forget, check them, check them out. Right. Uh, and, and while you're waiting, uh, you can go check out our website. It's graveyardpodcast.com. And there you can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise. You can listen to the show and you can become a patron. And we always thank the, the, the folks that have helped support the show over the years. Mm-hmm. It has been invaluable and it's allowed Adam and I to keep the show going, um, to keep our equipment in working order so that we can continue to put out, uh, more content for you guys. Um, check out our Facebook group. Uh, it is called the graveyard. Um, what seven, 8,000 members. Uh And this is the stuff, you know, this is where these stories come from. These are the folks that, that share those things with us. And if you've got a great story that you want to share, if uh, you've had a really weird experience or something funny or offhand, this is the place to share it. No one is going to make fun of you. No one's going to call you a kook or a crackpot to quote one of our earlier stories tonight. Um, it's a safe place. So be sure and check out our next episode. We're going to have more listener stories. And until next time, We'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon.